Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at ASCP and one of your hosts. Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified clinical laboratory scientist and the executive editor of journals at ASCP. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the carbon footprint of clinical laboratories, and we've got some really great guests, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name's Alyssa Gordon. I'm an associate professor of pathology specializing in gastrointestinal pathology at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm also the Cleveland Clinic medical director for sustainability. And I'm Cassandra Thiel. I'm an assistant professor at New York University Langone Health in the departments of population health and ophthalmology. A lot of my research focuses on uh, studying the environmental footprint of different medical pathways um, and laboratories. My name is James Conley. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm the chief executive officer at Migreen Lab, and our mission is to build a global culture of sustainability in science. Awesome, guys. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Before we get started, I need to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, great. So let's get going. First off, I just kind of want to say, obviously, the environment in general and climate change is obviously a major topic of conversation right now. And it feels like, at least to me, that the general population is maybe actually starting to take this seriously. Can you guys just broadly discuss the healthcare sector's impact on the environment? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to start us off. So the healthcare sector has uh, just recently been studied uh, more often. Uh, <laughs> previously, other sectors had a lot more attention on this environmental footprint side of things. But looking at the healthcare sector, we know that it's 18% of the GDP for spending. But for our climate footprint, the U.S. healthcare sector looks like about 85 to almost 10% of our carbon emissions in the U.S., uh, which is pretty substantial, right? If the healthcare sector were its own country, that means it'd be the 13th largest emitter in the world. Other studies globally have found that the healthcare sector is about 5% of emissions. So the U.S. healthcare sector is a little bit disproportionate. Um, and that's everything that the healthcare sector, all the activities that the healthcare sector is engaged in, right? So it includes transportation and food and energy and buildings and all of these things. But addressing uh, climate solutions within the healthcare space require us to, to really look at healthcare specifically. So Cassie, completely agree with you that healthcare is a major uh, contributor to carbon impact. I think actually the problem is much worse than what you outlined, which are big numbers. If you include the global pharmaceutical industry, the top 15 global pharmaceutical companies produce 55 percent higher carbon intensity than the automotive industry. And so that's just comparing the top 15 companies in pharmaceutical versus the top 10 companies in automotive. There's actually a lot more impact. My Green Lab is now embarking on a project to understand the overall impact of the pharmaceutical industry. We think it's actually even higher than that study that was just looking at the top 10 companies. And then 
it's a bit hard to disaggregate the data, frankly, because healthcare and pharma, biotech and biomedical, like they're it's sort of like hard to separate out those two numbers. I mean, <clears throat> basically, I guess what we can say and what we've been telling, you know, our funders and, and people that we work with is it's a big number and it needs to go down. And it's actually been sort of not one of the focuses of the overall global climate effort. And actually, healthcare pharmaceutical is one of the major contributors to climate change, and it needs to be addressed. And all of us, I'm sure, together are are working on that project. Yeah, so I agree with both of you guys. And I would add from a medical perspective that we know climate change is occurring, and we know that there is increasing awareness and evidence around the adverse human health effects of climate change and they affect every organ system. As pathologists, we deal with every organ system to some extent. And although, as you guys were saying, all industries, all economic and industrial sectors contribute to climate change and air pollution, and that's through the production of greenhouse gases, which are produced by the burning of fossil fuels and energy, fossil fuels for energy and transportation. The healthcare sector, and James, as you said, the pharmaceutical, you know, the broader healthcare sector, including pharmaceuticals, but hospitals and laboratories, we we rely on energy um, and rely on transportation to deliver healthcare. And because we know, as Cassie said, that the U.S. healthcare sector, we have a number now, thanks to uh, one of our paper's co-authors, Dr. Jody Sherman and her colleague, Matt Eckelman, that the greenhouse gas emissions of the U.S. healthcare sector is around eight and a half to 10 percent. And so since as physicians, we are supposed to do no harm, we need to find a way to reduce these greenhouse gas emissions and deliver healthcare with less of an environmental footprint. Yeah. Thanks, Alyssa, for mentioning the paper. I I read the paper that you and Cassie co-authored that recently appeared in AJCP regarding GI biopsies. Alyssa, can can you or Cassie talk to us a little bit about why you decided to perform this study? And also, since its publication, what what has been the reaction um, from the community or even from your colleagues? Sure. So like I said, we need to uh, identify ways as healthcare professionals to reduce the carbon emissions of our processes. And so as a pathologist, we decided to look at some of the most common surgical specimens that are processed in the laboratory. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a gastrointestinal pathologist. And so we focused on GI biopsies. Cassie can talk further about this, but the scope of the project has a variety of influencing factors. But to speak to your second part of your question about the reaction and uh, feedback after we've published our paper, I think there's been excellent feedback. We were lucky enough that the AJCP editor-in-chief, Dr. Uh, Stephen Croft, wrote a very supportive editorial of our work. And just helping to bring awareness to the clinical laboratory community, because in actuality, the research and government and nonprofit laboratory community has been working on greening the labs, as James can tell you, for many more years and is much more advanced in this than the clinical laboratories are. Yeah, Dr. Croft called it a new kind of laboratory stewardship, and I just really thought that that was a very insightful way to look at this, for sure. Cassie, do you have anything to add? 
Yeah, I was going to say with the motivation, I mean, so a lot of my work, I'm an engineer and we, we use these tools of life cycle assessment and carbon footprinting to, to just provide some data to clinicians and administrators and other people to show what their systems are look like in terms of emissions. And so um, Alyssa and um, we had Jody Sherman on the team and we kind of came together and <laughs> thought about, you know, what are what are the areas where we don't know what the carbon footprint is looking like yet? And these clinical laboratories of pathology labs were one of the areas. Um, so we started, you know, the project trying to, to quantify that just to provide some data, right? Like what where should we start focusing our efforts in the laboratory is a big question because we have limited resources to make changes. Um, so understanding our carbon emissions helps us target areas that will be more effective, right? So we harness what resources we do have to make bigger changes rather than just hoping that whatever we're doing will make a change. You mentioned, Cassie, the life cycle assessment. I want to delve into that a little bit further because whenever I read your paper, it was excellent. It was great. But then as I'm reading it, I'm like, holy crap, this is super daunting and big and massive and overwhelming. And I can't even imagine like actually undertaking something like this. So can you kind of go in to talk about the life cycle assessment, what goes into it, yes. what all you need to consider to perform one, that sort of thing? Sure. Yeah, it, it's definitely a lot of work. Um, what we're basically trying to do is set up a model of the system um, and then using databases and other information, trying to model the emissions associated with that. So life cycle assessment is guided by the International Organization for Standardization uh, 14040. Those are the guidelines usually comes in four parts. So it's goal and scope definition is step one. Step two is your life cycle inventory. Step three is life cycle impact assessment. And step four is uh, what we call interpretation and analysis. And they're actually iterative. So you don't necessarily go steps one through four, but you kind of float around between them. Um, so the, the really important first step is just figuring out the goal and scope, right? What are you trying to model and why? Because why actually will impact how you model it. Um, so if you're trying to compare two different things, let's say, I don't know, two different pathology equipment and, <laughs> and to compare them, though, you have to make sure that you're comparing them evenly. And that's where we define a functional unit. So what is the purpose of this thing that we're trying to model um, to take it to something else that's not necessarily clinical or pathology? You know, we would talk about transportation, maybe. So if I'm trying to compare a car and a bus my functional unit, I have to be carefully selecting. If I just say the function of a car is to travel a distance, um, then I'd be looking at the impact per kilometer. Well, a car is gonna look a lot better impact per kilometer than a bus will. So the functional unit is actually more like a people kilometer, right? How many people am I moving a certain distance? Um, so those are the critical questions you have to ask yourself about the system you're trying to model. Um, in our case, we went with the, the GI biopsy as kind of our, our narrowed boundaries. And we followed that GI specimen every step through the lab. And so the, the first thing you want to do when you're doing a life cycle assessment is understand the system you're trying to model. Um, so Alyssa's team in the lab um, actually went through every step. They followed that sample all the way through the lab and they logged everything that was happening to it, all of the different people involved. Um, all of the different materials that were needed to process that sample. So this is disposable materials, reagents, reusable items, all of the capital equipment that might be using electricity or other energy sources. So we needed that detailed list of absolutely everything that is involved in processing that sample. And once we have that list, we can move on to step two, which is setting up our inventory, right? So we have this list 
We tried to match everything there with our databases. So there's life cycle assessment databases that help us in estimating emissions per unit, uh, right? So if I have say the the cup the sample came in is made out of polypropylene. I can map that polypropylene with a polypropylene in my database. And it says, you know, on average, manufacturing this much polypropylene releases this much CO2 and other types of emissions. Um, and so that's the, the job of the life cycle specialist is trying to map out those materials. And then ultimately, step three kind of gets automated into the process with our software, but you're, you're converting all these different emissions into CO2 equivalents, right? Because there's lots of different gases out there that trap heat when they're up in the atmosphere. It's not just CO2, but there's methane and nitrous oxide and desflurane and, you know, tons of other things. And so our, our databases will log each of those uh, chemicals or compounds individually. Uh, the impact assessment phase combines them all so that it's a number that we can actually wrap our heads around. Um, and that's where you get the kind of final result of CO2 equivalents. So that's kind of where the carbon footprint comes from. We can do this with other impact categories too, not just carbon emissions, but water emissions, uh, other air pollutants, land pollutants, and like toxicity. So that's the benefit of life cycle assessments. You can look at a lot of different types of emissions. Just to keep rolling. Though, yeah, about. absolutely. This is just completely <laughs> fascinating to me. Yeah, it's it's its own science. The, the fourth step is kind of, you know, you look at your results, you, you ask if they make sense. We make a lot of assumptions, of course, when we're setting up these models, because there's a lot of things we don't necessarily know. Right. So one of the challenges for us was how to estimate the energy for this space in the lab, because labs um, like a lot of clinical space, they're not submetered. Right. We couldn't just look at a little thermostat on the wall and say, OK, this is how much energy it's using today. Um, we had to set up some uh, guesses for that. And so the, the fourth stage of the life cycle assessment is to test those assumptions. So we set up sensitivity analyses to see how important those assumptions are to the final results and, you know, how how much variability there may be in our range of assumptions. And so that's kind of where you get the, these range of results in life cycle assessment. Um, so it's a lot of work to set these up. There's a few different ways to do it, um, which could simplify or not. But generally, you really want to understand your system. And that's where it's important to work with clinicians or professionals like Alyssa to, to really understand what's going on in that system. And it's for the modeling, but of course, working with those people really helps when you get your results in right now. We have results. What do we do with them? I'm just the, the LCA engineer person who has a lot of experience with healthcare, but I'm not a clinician. I'm not that kind of doctor. And so actually making those changes requires people who really know what's going on in those spaces. I think the value of the LCA and thanks Cassie for, <laughs> for giving us all the insight into how it's done. I, I know over the months that we worked on it together, there was, I saw all your spreadsheets and it is a massive <laughs> amount of data. But what I was going to say is sort of back to the big picture is we really need to know what our sort of baseline is for what we're doing in order to understand where we can make improvements. And so the idea that we are looking at capital equipment and energy, and we're looking at supplies, and we're looking at reagents, and we're looking at employee transportation, in our paper, we're able to see like, and in any life cycle assessment, you're then able to see which categories and for us, which step of the process is really influencing the outcome in ways that may or may not be <laughs> changeable, but at least we know what we're dealing with. And for example, in our case, it came down to the concept that fewer biopsy jars is better. And we discuss how that's not always clinically possible, but 
where it is, it's it's better. And um, there's definitely some examples in our own pathology lab here at the Cleveland Clinic where we've seen we've seen that we've been able to cut down on some of the <laughs> some of the jars that come to us from the procedures. So fascinating. So James, sw- switching gears just a little bit, your company mostly works with research laboratories at the moment. But can you talk about how you, the work you do could be applied, especially in the context of what Alyssa and Cassie were just discussing, how what you do could be applied to clinical laboratories? And, and maybe tell us a little bit about what you do for the audience, but how it could be applied to clinical labs. Sure. So first of all, Cassie and Alyssa, I'm really excited to read and understand this report that you put together. I think LCA is such an amazing tool to understand where are the impacts and where are the key leverage points. Back of the envelope, if you will, we think that laboratories are a huge impact in healthcare. It sounds like you guys have quantified that in a bit more clear of a way. You know, so my green lab traditionally worked with academic and biotech and pharmaceutical institutions, R&D facilities, highly regulated facilities with a lot of very, very smart people that are doing incredible world changing work. So inserting a sustainability intervention in that type of environment is challenging and it's challenging for a number of reasons. There's regulation. There's also just sort of the perception that you need to do things the way that you've been doing them before. But I think what we're seeing, particularly with younger researchers, is that they're interested and excited about being part of the change, doing something different. And even with the big biotech and pharmaceutical companies, they realize that like the next generation of people that they hire is going to be a bit different than people that they're working with now. Not that those people don't have the opportunity to change. And of course they do. And we work on that as well. So clinical laboratories for us, it's a similar environment, highly regulated people that are very experienced, very knowledgeable and doing incredible, important work. COVID-19 highlighted that. And it also meant that most of the people working in that environment were pretty focused on saving lives. And so sustainability maybe took a bit of a backseat, but we're seeing that that's changing now as we're coming out of the pandemic. And our tool, which is really a tool to empower scientists to understand what is the environmental impact of the work that they're doing, how can they make a difference and provide them actionable tools to improve their laboratory is becoming more and more popular in the clinical setting. We have some partnerships we're discussing with some major research institutions. We think it could change and be modified to maybe more particularly fit that particular research environment. And actually, Alyssa and Cassie, I would be super interested for you to explain maybe your experience about what Migraine Lab certification maybe needs to change to better fit. I think it's more of a production environment, although... A lot of the R&D companies we're working with also have a bit of more of a production environment. Yeah, so it's a part of the market that we are really interested in, in helping. We think our tool can be valuable. It's sort of something that we're just being asked to provide rather than something that we're specifically targeting as an organization. But I think we have a lot of opportunity to have an impact. And I don't know, I I would be interested, Alyssa, in your and Cassie's just thoughts about like how our tool 
could change or, or what our tool could do to, to more benefit your work. Actually, James, I appreciate that about the My Green Lab certification. I do think Green Lab certifications are definitely something that is becoming much more popular and prominent in sort of our research academic laboratory setting, which is also not a production facility. So that's, you know, that's a good thing. And and I think it's it's possible that the clinical laboratories may latch on to that Green Lab certification concept. But I think right now this it's still in the research laboratory stage for us. And I know plenty of research laboratories that are, you know, taking advantage of my Green Lab certification program. And before your program came along, everybody was trying to make their own program and and whatnot. And so some of those are still around as well. What I wanted to say, James, is that the ACT label is really where we are focusing our efforts. And so you can tell us what it is, and then I'll tell you why it's so great. Yeah, I was going to say, let's, let's get a definition here. I'm, I'm not sure I'm familiar with this. Well, so the ACT label program is the premier eco-nutrition label for laboratory products. And, you know, honestly, as any consumer of any product, the ACT label is, is really a brilliant concept where you can understand the environmental impact of a product. You can understand the environmental impact of a product from production to use to end of life. So it's a program that we're trying to grow and very excited to hear, Alyssa, that you guys are are adopting it. We've had really good feedback. I think a lot of these issues in sustainability tend to be communication issues. The companies that we talk to, Agilent, Thermo Fisher, Eppendorf, they want to do the right thing. They want to make sustainable products made in a sustainable way for their customers but they often have a hard time communicating that to their customers. And I think ACT provides a really great validation that a company has been thinking about these issues and doing the right thing that consumers can then make the right decision for. And I'm just going to add maybe one more thing. This is where My Green Lab, which had primarily been focused on R&D laboratories, has a lot of crossover uh, with clinical laboratories. It turns out that Thermo Fisher, Eppendorf, Millipore Sigma, et cetera. These big companies that supply R&D labs are also the same companies that supply clinical labs. And so we developed a partnership with Visient, which is the largest healthcare purchasing organization in the U.S. last year to adopt the ACT label and begin integrating it into their members' purchasing decision-making. I think companies like yours, Alyssa, move even faster. You can begin making decisions even quicker. And it's just interesting for us, Migrant Lab, sitting at this sort of higher level, we'll talk to a company and they'll say, oh, well, we we talked to Alyssa Gordon at Cleveland Clinic, and apparently sustainability is what our customers care about. So you are actively shifting the market. And it's pretty powerful. And I think everybody on this podcast that's listening has the opportunity to do so as well. Yes, I totally agree. So I have been involved with My Green Lab and Act Label Inception since before you were the CEO, James, when Allison was there and when Rachel was still back at Thermo Fisher. So um, to see the amazing progress that it's made and the effects that it can help us have on, you know, leveraging our ask through the supply chain is is really profound. 
I don't know if you mentioned it stands, it stands for accountability, consistency, and transparency. And it actually looks like a nutrition label, like James was saying. And so it lets us evaluate certain aspects of manufacturing, the user impact and the end of life. If we want to focus on end of life and packaging, we can just look at that bar and sort of set goals and benchmarks internally for, for those types of things. But really, this is one of the things I think that binds laboratories of any type, clinical research, R&D, anything together, is that we all need to buy stuff. We all need to buy stuff for our laboratories. And actually, it turns out, James, a lot of the companies that have adopted the ACT label provide not just laboratory products, but products throughout our healthcare system. And Andy Pettit on our Cleveland Clinic sustainability team, who's our green purchasing expert, he pointed that out to me. And he's like, "These these are products that we're buying for elsewhere in the hospital as well. And so I think that's where we're going to get some big influence in terms of enhancing the communication between wanting to deliver green healthcare, sort of even in a back of house way where it's like a purchasing decision. And we're able to influence the markets by leveraging the power of the act label. Well, I mean, that's kind of like a tenant of just consumer environmentalism, right? That recycling starts at the store, like don't buy the plastic thing to begin with, buy the paper thing. That sort of idea. Kelly, I think, I mean, it's kind of interesting to circle back to the LCA issue. The majority, I mean, healthcare institutions have a lot of impact just through their facilities, through the facilities they run, the energy they consume, the water they consume. But there's this detailed supply chain that provides them products that actually probably is a bigger impact than just that, what they can control in their own facilities. And what Alyssa is doing, and it's amazing, Alyssa, like just one question from Cleveland Clinic that you should do the right thing, all of a sudden gets all the executives at Thermo Fisher or Millipore Sigma interested in thinking about sustainability because those companies are built to provide what their customers want. So if their customers are clear with them about what they want, how the industry should transform and how they can fit into it through the ACT label program, which is a great program that provides great transparency, then they're on board. But it does, as you're saying, Kelly, like it starts with the consumer. Like they have to care and be interested. And if they care and are interested, their power is amazing. It's beyond what they will believe. Like Alyssa, I cannot believe how many conversations I've had with manufacturers they are like, well, I talked to Alyssa and she said, this is where we're going. That is so awesome to me. That's, that makes me happy. You guys are kind of teeing me up here for my next question, which is just talking about what laboratories can do on a day-to-day basis. We commonly hear the term re- reduce, reuse, recycle. You know, that's not always fe- feasible with, with the medical waste that we generate. Can you kind of talk about these three R's and what what laboratories can do within that, or even outside of it. Because I know, James, we've had conversations in the past about asking why. So let's talk about the three R's and then the why question. I actually would question the three R's. We do definitely want to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but it's actually a much more complex picture right now. And it it's essentially equivalent to your comment earlier, Kelly, where you said paper versus plastic. And the answer is 
by recycled content, <laughs> whether it's paper or plastic. If you if you look for a higher percentage of recycled content, then you are helping to continue the circular economy of recycling. And in that case, if you believe in the value of plastic recycling, buy products with recycled plastic content, and then if possible, recycle them. But essentially, yes, we still do want to reduce consumption. And I'll just start off with the laboratory perspective of that, which is um, something we also mentioned in our paper, which is essentially aligning with the concepts of the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is to order the appropriate tests at the right time and for the appropriate patients such that we will have impact on their care. And so just to be thoughtful about ordering laboratory tests, and as pathologists, we are the consultants, you know, we run the laboratories and we are the consultants to all of the clinical staff in terms of, is this the right test to order? Do I need both of these tests or just one of them? And so that's, that's part of the reduction in laboratory medicine is to, is to get the test order correct in the first place so that we're not, oh, I ordered that one by accident, even though you already ran it and let's order the other one. So we have a lot of influence there. And, you know, in an ideal state, the Choosing Wisely campaign would consider incorporating these concepts in terms of, you know, if we're able to do more LCAs and understand, you know, this test is equivalent to this test clinically, but this one has a much higher environmental footprint. And so can we get that information across if we're aware of it? So th thanks for saying that. I, I think you're feeding into my next thought and, you know, it's reduce, recycle, reuse. There's also a void, which is, I think, what you're you're referring to is the idea that if we don't need to do something, we shouldn't do it. And that's going to save us time and money. And, and I think I want to I want to delve into this just a little bit deeper, two aspects of it. I'll mention both of them and you guys can respond. The first is the avoidance piece Again, if let's say, you know, you're, you're, if we're talking about surgical pathology and GI biopsies, right? The avoidance piece is, you know, two clinicians don't take a biopsy unless you see something that's wrong. And, and to some degree, that was fiscally solved during the Obama administration by the 88305 reduction in, in reimbursement to small shops. And so that's been forced everybody into academic labs, but that just increased the volume. I mean, we can talk about that all day with the American Cancer Society's recent reduction of colonoscopy down to age 45, you know, maybe there's going to be an increase. So, so there's no question that lots of people are going to be getting colonoscopies, right? There's no issue there. And they're going to be having them in high quality academic centers. I think 88305 reduction and the AS, ACS comments have done that. The question is, the onus is now on the clinicians to only take biopsies from the pathologist saying this, right? If you want a green lab, only take biopsies that are absolutely necessary. And what that does is ultimately reduces the volume coming into the pathology lab, right? For them, which is what we want. We only want things that are appropriate. But how, so, so the first question I have is, how do you balance that with a lab that's trying to get more samples, right? Trying to push for more samples. So, so although we're having a very important and fruitful discussion about reducing waste and avoiding usage, the CFO is constantly saying, get more samples, find more populations. We need more material coming into the lab, right? So I'd like to hear about how you think we can balance that, you know, from any of you. And the second thing is, you know, I can't say this is the ACK label, but the idea that, as James said, you would go to a manufacturer as a customer and say as Cleveland Clinic, which has enormous buying power just because of the sheer volume that they do with, say, thermoscientific or any, you know, any supplier, doesn't matter. When you go to them and say, hey, we really want, you know, 
80% of our products to contain some kind of recycled material, or we really only want to buy products from you where recycling is part of that process, does that reduce the cost, right? And, and, and then this is important because not because we're talking about cost, we're talking about environment, but that's that axis of the healthcare system is already overpriced, right? We know that the supply chain into healthcare increases its prices constantly, always finding ways to increase those costs while Medicare and private insurance reimbursement for what we're doing is reducing, reducing, reducing. And, you know, I had a very in-depth conversation with someone about this earlier this week. The idea is that if you if you say to a, a manufacturer, hey, this is what we want, and they're like, great, we can give you that for two more cents an item, right? Is that worse or better? Like, how do you balance the staggering, horrible costs of healthcare that we're having to deal with with trying to make these environmental changes? I know those are very heady questions, and I apologize. They're, they're, they're good but, questions, but, but I want, but I'd like your feedback on those. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I'm going to respond as me. The idea that the healthcare system is the one that should be responsible for the costs of the environmental impact of the products that it buys, it's a wrong idea. The healthcare systems that we work with, they care about the environment. They care about health, like health is primary to their mission. And so that includes health of the environment overall. And they're sitting at this kind of like awkward position where they want their suppliers to do the right thing yet they don't quite have the money to push them to do it. But I will tell you, I work with most of the major companies that supply healthcare. They can do this and they can do it at a cost that's not huge. Uh, We had a conversation with a very large company where they're like, oh man, if we did act label for every one of our products, it would cost millions of dollars. I'm like, okay, this is a trillion dollar industry. That's not a big number for you. And they know that and things will change, but it'll only be driven by the hospitals and the clinicians making the right decisions about where the industry should shift. But how to explain on the, on the, the plastic recycling thing, I think we can get really caught up that it's our fault, right? It's our fault that we don't know how to re- recycle this item. And like Cleveland Connect could spend years and research efforts and train every single one of their staff members to take this one particular piece of plastic and put it in the right recycling bin. That's sort of not putting the blame where it should be put. Actually, Cleveland Clinic is a consumer of plastics and they're doing their absolute best. Everybody I've talked to there has been pushing forward recycling as best they can. The manufacturers are not making products that are recyclable. We as consumers need to recognize our power, recognize our ability to shift the market. And when Alyssa says something, people listen up. But I worry sometimes that we focus too much on how we're reducing and you know the three R's for our particular facilities when actually our bigger impact is shifting the supply chain. And when you shift the supply chain, that supplies everybody. It's not just you. And so I think that we need to be proud and stand up for, for our ability to shift the market and not just worry about focusing on reducing our own impact. Cassie, did you have something to add? Yeah, I was going to say, I, 
I agree with uh, James on all of those fronts. I think there is obviously a big growth in sustainability in this marketplace. And for those manufacturers, this is a market opportunity. It's not like some extra cost that's going to drag them down that they have to push onto their consumers. Like this is going to open up new markets for them um, and keep them competitive. So yeah, it does cost money for them to shift production lines into something more sustainable to do the R&D. But I don't think it's necessary for them to always push that onto consumers and yeah, I'll probably get some debates coming in from this comment, but, but I agree with James. It's just, this is the way that the market is shifting. And I think as long as, you know, hospitals and other consumers kind of take it upon themselves to suggest that they're interested, um, these companies, these manufacturers will start seeing that that is the shift in the market. And that's the area that they need to, to move into if they want to remain competitive. Yeah. The reduce, reuse, recycle, it's in that order for a reason. I always found recycling, just as James was kind of saying, like, you know, Cleveland Clinic could spend decades training their staff on how to recycle every single item. Um, that doesn't mean that it's actually going to be recycled effectively. Uh, the recycling market is notoriously convoluted at best. There's some really interesting, uh, like a frontline documentary talking about how the recycling industry was really pushed as a way to avoid responsibility um, for from the manufacturers, right? They're trying to push it off to individual consumers and make it sound like it's each of our individual faults rather than um, the fact that there's no collective action um, to enable this. Um, and that's where the empowerment comes in by, by doing the reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, so the findings that, that we had in our pathology study from Melissa and I is that the pathology lab is actually fairly efficient. There's not a lot of wiggle room when you talk about an individual sample going through that lab. Um, there's not a lot of wiggle room or obvious places to improve the carbon footprint. And that's where the reduction in bringing in cases is important. And Dan, as you were suggesting, that that has to be balanced out with that volume, right? So some of the work that I've done in surgeries, looking at the environmental footprint from surgeries, suggests that you know the, the higher the volume, the lower your footprint per patient. Um, and the same would be true for your pathology labs, right? The, the more samples you can run through that space, the less your overhead per individual item. So that volume is an important factor that's that's balanced out by trying to reduce just the unnecessary volume. Right? So it's, it's a weird balancing point. And we have to find that, I think, for each region where pathology labs exist. Um, but that reduction is, is very critical. Um, and reuse beyond that, uh, the lab that we were looking at already has a lot of reusable items. Um, so in that way, they're kind of optimized, right? There's kind of limited what they can do here. But at least for other clinical spaces, certainly with the other LCA work I've done in, in uh, procedures and surgeries, there's a lot of unnecessary waste. Um, so it's not just reducing what procedures we're doing that are unnecessary, but there's a lot of things that are brought in to those surgical areas that are unused entirely or only partially used, especially true with pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of improvements across the board. Um, so I don't know if Alyssa's lab is just uh, really efficient compared to other labs, but you know it helps to just maybe even do some waste auditing. Alyssa and I love waste audits. So, we do. Uh, so to look through like what is being thrown away and, and why and how, like are the reagents, are you getting the most out of those um, or are you throwing the, those away unnecessarily, right? That could be uh, a major area um, where you are empowered to control your own situation. What James was kind of talking about, about your own operations, your own facility in carbon footprinting, we call that scoping. So when you're just doing carbon footprinting for a business, they usually talk about scopes one, two, and three. And scope one is everything that you're emitting yourself. And healthcare as a service doesn't usually emit all that much, right? So we may have waste incineration. We may have uh, anesthetic gases. Those are direct emissions. But usually most healthcare facilities aren't 
emitting a whole lot themselves. Scope two includes all your purchased energy. And there you can see you can control that a little bit more. And you're emitting a, a little bit more when you include that scope. The scope three emissions are everything, your whole supply chain, all your waste treatment. And you can see where that's harder to control. You have to work with your manufacturers. You have to work with every individual person in your unit to reduce what they're throwing away unnecessarily. Um, you have to work with a whole bunch of different contractors on your waste management, right? It's harder to reduce your scope three emissions, but that's that's really where the bulk of the emissions are coming from in healthcare. And that's one of the areas we have to focus on. Just to follow up on that, James and Cassie, do you envision or are there currently precedent for manufacturers that provide to the consumer the recycle pathway and i'm thinking of things like one-time use surgical guns or you know items that are are complex and you can use them once but then you know what do you do with them not little plastic bottles and fluids and things i mean that's you got to have a system for that but are, are there precedents where manufacturers have done that and said you know like you do with like when you get your new printer cartridge they send you an envelope to send back your old printer cartridge is there examples of that in healthcare right now dan yes there are there's for devices like that, for medical devices, it's called single-use device reprocessing. And what happens is the companies who provide the original device will take back the device, take it apart, clean it, and sterilize it and put it back together with, you know, whatever modifications it needs from when they originally sold it or whatnot and replacement of any parts and then uh, sell it as a reprocessed device. And the Cleveland Clinic and, and numerous healthcare systems take part in those uh, single-use device reprocessing programs. So that is that is definitely something that happens. We're seeing more and more of this sort of take back type of mentality. So it's in the field, it's called extended producer responsibility, which is sort of what James is talking about, where it's not our fault, we have to buy your plastic <laughs> items, and that we have to dispose of it. And so, so the concept of extended producer responsibility has to do with the, the manufacturers, and sometimes the distributors really taking a more active role in helping us to manage the waste that comes along with the product that we need. And just to circle back and tie some things together with that, one thing we haven't really brought up here is the concept of, let's say, the plastic jar or the plastic pipette, and then the packaging that it comes in. And actually, the packaging is really what has a lot of value in terms of it's not it's not red bag waste, it's not hazardous, it's just a, it's just a piece of plastic that's clean packaging. So that is really something that is valuable that we could try to recycle. And the Cleveland Clinic is a member of the health of the uh, Healthcare Plastics Recycling Council, HPRC. And I'm, I've been uh, one of our liaisons to that group for years. And similar to My Green Lab, we, we work with the major healthcare companies that provide products to healthcare. And we look at recycling all along the value chain. So we get to talk to the product designers and they can tell us why they can't make the actual you know, jar out of something more recyclable, but, but they can, you know, decrease the number of multi-layer films or something in, in the packaging so that it's uh, just a single type of plastic and easier for us to recycle. There's that component of it about the, the packaging really versus the, you know, the ick factor with, you know, this contained, this, <laughs> this, this tube contained bodily fluids type of thing. And then the other thing, actually, I wanted to circle back on that Cassie was talking about the volume, increased volumes can lead to 
a smaller footprint per case. And to Dan's question about screening for colonoscopies. So I think only about 65 to 70% of Americans are currently abiding by the screening recommendations. So we have plenty of more work to do there to get American adults to come in and get their screening colonoscopy in order to increase uh, increase volumes throughout the system in terms of getting biopsies and avoiding cancers really is why we're doing those biopsies. So that would be good for everybody. And then the last thing I wanted to say about that is bringing it back to the packaging. So if if you're in a high volume situation, like you could talk to the manufacturer and say, hey, instead of giving us, you know, instead of us buying a hundred single individually wrapped, you know, pipettes. Can we buy a uh, hundred of them in bulk in one in one bag? <laughs> and that eliminates a lot of the packaging and has a better probably act label footprint to to sell it in bulk like that. So there's a lot of interconnectedness in what we're talking about, and I think it's really exciting to hear where where everything's going. And hopefully, you know, we can bring more of these concepts to the clinical laboratories because, like I said, they're they're definitely further along in the non-clinical laboratory setting. Thank you so much. And, and I think to all of you for participating, I have about 10,000 more questions, but we're not going to be able to get to them, unfortunately. Um, and I could talk with Alyssa all day long about where colonoscopy is going, but that, that's a different podcast. So again, thank you so much for participating. <laughs> this was a really interesting discussion. I know that we've all learned a lot. I hope our audience did as well. And uh, I just want to remind our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and uh, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And please don't forget that you can receive CME or CMLE credit for listening to this podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store or on our website at www.ascp.org.